The Word of God comes to us this morning from the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, once again, and from the ninth verse. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. <coughs> some days there uh, is, is Luke sometimes plays fast and loose with time. Uh, probably a number of weeks that they remained in Philippi, just given the rest of the account that we will get to in the next week or so. Uh, but all of that was stuff that we read last week and talked about last week. But it brings us up to verse 13 and uh, what happened once they got to Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Uh, That was top of the line merchandise that she was selling. She was... Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the top stores are now, but it was that. Uh, Bonwit and Teller or something? I don't know. Uh, but uh, uh, this was not uh, the dollar store or anything like that. It was uh, high-grade uh, merchandise. Who was a worshiper of God? She wasn't a Jew, but she worshiped their God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Lord, again we ask that you would open this portion of your word to us and us to it. For the sake of Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. In the last, beginning with, I guess, the last two verses of Acts chapter 15 and throughout all of chapter 16 and throughout all of chapter 17 and through almost all of chapter 18, runs the account of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, This one undertaken with Silas. They set out with a plan to visit all of the churches that had been established on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And I don't know if it was in the very beginning of the journey, before they got very far out of Syria and Antioch, or if it was consequent to their having visited some of the churches, the established churches, But they had in their plan, whether it was from the beginning or in addition, to visit Asia. 
except the Holy Spirit forbid that. And so the plan either had been original or was modified to include Bithynia. They would go into Bithynia. And, uh, and that, too, was forbid by the Holy Spirit. And so, as you remember, they made their way to Troas. I think to get on a boat to go back to Syria and Antioch. But uh, I'm sure they were puzzling over the events of that second, second journey thus far. And uh, as they were doing so, uh, Paul has this vision of a man of Macedonia saying, hey, come over here and help us. And uh, so immediately they set out to go there. Uh, to Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to Macedonia to preach the gospel to them, to the Macedonians. And uh, so they went. You see, they they had this good plan. They were working that good plan, but God had a bigger and better plan. And so they have this vision and they go to Macedonia. They get to Macedonia, they land at the seaport and make the 10-mile trek inland to Philippi, and uh, on the Sabbath day, they find a ladies' Bible study meeting by the river because there was no synagogue. There weren't 10 Jewish men in Philippi, apparently, to organize a synagogue, or else they would have had one. And so there's this group of ladies praying at the riverside, And Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke talked to them. And I suspect that went on not just that one Sabbath day, but for a number of Sabbath days. They come and they meet with the ladies' prayer group and they speak to them. And you know what they spoke to them about, I'm sure. They had uh, come to Macedonia to preach the gospel. To the Macedonians. So they spoke, and lo and behold, on that first Sabbath or on a subsequent Sabbath, I believe it to be the latter, one of the ladies comes to believe in Jesus Christ. They have come with the gospel, brought the gospel into Europe. They have changed Western civilization forever. And they have turned the world upside down. And we said last week, they didn't plan to do that. They didn't know they were doing that. And when they had done it, they had no earthly idea that they had. And I say all that to remind you and to encourage you that you don't know what you are accomplishing when you speak of Jesus to others, family members, children, friends, neighbors, co-workers, teachers, students, whoever. You have no idea what you have accomplished you have no idea what you will yet accomplish. Be encouraged by the missionary band 
had no earthly idea. All they knew was they were supposed to go over there and preach the gospel, and they did it. Keep on. Keep on. Well, they'd come to preach the gospel, and so they preached it. And lo and behold, here they had their first convert in Europe, the first European convert who was not European at all. She was Asian. She was from Thyatira, and Thyatira is in Asia, that very place where Paul and Silas and Timothy wanted to go. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them. Now, I need to speak to the Presbyterians in this group. You can smile. You can laugh out loud. Yes, the Bible is an important book, and we ought to be serious about God and about his word, but goodness gracious, sometimes his word is full of irony and humor. And if you just lighten up and see what's there, She's an Asian for crying out loud. And they wanted to go preach the gospel to the Asians. And here God's got them preaching the gospel to the Macedonians. And an Asian is converted. If I had time, I'd tell you the story about the Chinese guy, a friend of mine, that went to New York City 40 years ago to plant a Chinese-speaking church. His first converts were three generations of a Puerto Rican family living in the same apartment. He planted a Spanish-speaking Puerto Rican church before he ever got around. He finally got around to a Chinese-speaking church. Don't have time to do that. But do you see the humor? Do you see the irony of all that? If, if you ponder this, this passage long enough and, and you just light on that idea and you think it through, I really believe you will see Jesus. That's another reason I love the Bible. It's, it's filled with such stuff as this. Irony and humor. In addition to being the word of God and the word of life, it is just good literature. It is good reading. Well, you should plan. You shouldn't sit around wondering what God has for you to do or what his plan for you is. You plan something and you go do it. But always holding your plan lightly and allowing God to work his bigger and better plan. Now, put that aside. Now let's talk about what we just got to reading about and that is about Lydia. Her experience informs our understanding of salvation, and it does so in three key ways. In the first place, her experience demonstrates the Holy Spirit's instrumentality in salvation. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention 
to what was said by Paul. That's what we read. How? Well, his instrument is usually the Holy Spirit and his word. The Holy Spirit then opened the heart of Lydia. The heart is the seat of our emotions. But as you read the passage and you think about it and what is going on and what happened, there's more involved than simple emotions. The intellect is engaged. The will is engaged. They, they all come together here, and I think Luke is using something of shorthand, know more about that in a minute, for the work of the Spirit. He opened her heart to pay attention. That is to take notice of, to regard as important, to take seriously. It's the opposite of to ignore. And it's much, 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 much more than to have a mild curiosity about. In theological terms, what what happened was regeneration or new birth. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? John records it in the third chapter of his gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, capital S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is spirit, small s. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Think back to when you became a Christian, to the events surrounding that. Now, if you can do that, some of you I recognize don't remember it was you were too young you've never known when you haven't been walking with Christ but most of us I suspect or a good number of us we can remember we can remember you knew something about Jesus probably but you ignored it to a certain extent it certainly wasn't all that Important, but maybe you were mildly curious about him and about the things said about him, but nothing much more than that. I remember that was exactly the way I lived my life. I knew of Jesus, you know, where I lived. He was in the South. Who didn't know about Jesus? It didn't matter much. He figured in no way, shape, or form in the way I lived and talked and thought and walked and everything else. He was sort of there somewhere, but didn't matter much. Every once in a while, that curiosity would build up. So I'd get out the Bible. 
generally, it, I was in a motel room because I traveled all the time, and uh, it was a Gideon King James Version Bible. You ever try to read a Gideon King James Version Bible? Might as well be written in Hebrew and Greek. You know, I mean, it just you lay there and sit there and you read and you read and they, and so I put it down. A year later, some other hotel, some other Gideon King James Bible, I'd read it. And it just made no sense. I talked to a brother in the Lord this week, and he shared his story, same story, trying to read the King James Bible, and you know, and wade through it, make sense of anything. It's hard when you when you're lost, you know to do that it wasn't really all that important anyway you know so it didn't matter that it was basically a closed book John Calvin said without the Holy Spirit the Bible is always a closed book and he's right but then everything changed everything changed The Holy Spirit used what the Apostle Paul said in Lydia's life and in your life and in my life. Well, then the question is, what did Paul say? He said the gospel. That's what he was there for. The story of Jesus Christ. The Son of God come from heaven. And especially that part about the ugly, bloody, cruel death on a cross. And its purpose. And its meaning. But you couldn't get past any more than I could get past that ugly, bloody, seemingly senseless dying. And what did it mean for me anyway? So I'm sure you're like me. You turned away from it. You turned away from it because it was ugly and you didn't understand it anyway. Until that day. Until that one day when something happened and you saw it in a new light. I'm not speaking literally now. But there was a real sense in which you saw Jesus lifted up on the cross. It was no longer sort of like it was in your Sunday school books or whatever, you know. There's a hill and there are three crosses and one's in the middle, stands out a little bit, but there are three crosses, three men dying on the crosses. All of a sudden, maybe the hill's there and, and, and the other crosses are there, but there in the center and there lifted up, elevated is the cross and Jesus is on it and he's still bloody and he's still bruised and he's still broken and he's still beaten and he's dead. But it grips you. All of a sudden, it's important and it's filled with meaning. It becomes all you see. And you see Jesus on that cross in all his radiant glory 
and majesty and holiness. And you fell on your face. And you cried out something to the effect of just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world, I come, I come. Didn't you? It was something like that. It may not have been so loud or dramatic, emotional but that's what took place that's what happens to us and everything was changed your life was no longer your life everything became new including you you were a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ so was Lydia so was Lydia. That doesn't say that in so many words, does it? Or does it? Read on. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well. Don't have time to fool with that last phrase, in her household as well, some other day. But it leads us to this second area of salvation. Her experience testifies to, to baptism's importance in salvation. It doesn't save, nor is it necessary for salvation. Get that out of the way quick. But it does have certain meanings to us. I'll give you three of them. In the first place, it's a sign and seal of God's covenant promise fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Secondly, it testifies that a person has professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we Presbyterians believe and practice believers' baptism as appropriate. And then it's the third meaning, young people. Young people, boys and girls who were baptized and you don't remember it at all. You were there. <laughs> But you don't remember it. You were baptized as little babies. What could it possibly mean for you? Well, it's that same promise that God has made to his people throughout the ages. And, and you look at your baptism. Think about your baptism. Next time a little baby's baptized up here, you watch and you take notes and you go home and you think about that because what it is is God's promising to you holding out to you every one of those covenant promises, every one of those promises of forgiveness of sins and life eternal. And it's his call to you and you and you and you and you, and you know, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to Jesus and rest in him for salvation. Now listen, everyone, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 167, there's a question. It's important here. 
The question is, how is our baptism to be improved by us? And all I can do is read my summation of the six various ways it suggests. Here's how our salvation is to be improved by us. One, by your gratitude for it and for its benefits. Two, by your being humbled by your sin. Three, by your growing assurance of forgiveness. Four, by your finding strength in the death and resurrection of Jesus and its power to mortify sins, that is to kill, put to death sins. Five, by your endeavoring to live by faith in holiness and righteousness. And six, by your walking in brotherly or sisterly love. Well, that kind of sums up what happened to Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to get serious about what Paul was saying, that is about Jesus and the cross and salvation. She was baptized. And they wouldn't baptize her unless she professed faith in that Jesus. And so we look at her fact of her baptism and say, yes, she came to Christ. She's converted. She's a Christian. But there's more that tells us that. Roman number three, if you're one of those people. Her experience underscores good works, indispensability to salvation. Understand this. Well, let's read this first. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now understand this. We are saved by grace through faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is absolutely no room in that statement for works as a means, a way to salvation, as carrying any points with God that in any way would bring us into salvation. But, Saving faith is always accompanied by good works. Oh, there are some notable, except, notable exceptions. There's a thief on the cross. He didn't have much time to do much good. There are deathbed conversions. But normally, saving faith is always, always accompanied with good works. In fact, It is the ground out of which those good works sprout. So let me quote some folks. Jesus' brother James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, 
I will show you my faith by my works. Or the Apostle Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. And those new creatures are created unto good works, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of which led Martin Luther, the great reformer, to say that faith does not need to be told to do good works. It's too busy already doing them. And Charles Spurgeon said, those who do nothing for Christ or his church give but sorry, sorry evidence of, a, of an opened heart. And so the question is, what sort of evidence of a heart opened by the Lord have you given? Lydia was a worshiper of God. Perhaps that may be said of some of you. But listen to Matthew Henry who wrote, it is not enough to be worshipers of God, but we must be believers in Jesus Christ. For there is no coming to God as a father, but by him, that is Jesus, as mediator. A mediator is a conciliator, a peacemaker, a go-between, an intercessor. There is no coming to God as Father, but through Him, which is God's invitation to you this morning. Let's pray.